Everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job live from Empower. I'm here with Liz Merle. She's running for Attorney General of the state of Louisiana. Welcome in, Liz. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. Okay, let's get straight to this. How much cash do you have to have in your freezer to be able to run for Attorney General in Louisiana? So I think a minimum of $2 million. Nice. How much did Jefferson have in his uh, freezer? Oh, I was think it four hundred thousand? Uh, oh, I thought it was less than that, but it was like thirty thousand in cash or something <laughs> like that. It was, it was more money than I keep in my freezer yeah. in cash. Yeah. In fact, I keep just to be clear, I keep no cash in my freezer. Okay, so. we've gotten to the bottom of that. I appreciate that. So, what have you been doing? What 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 happened? You want to put life a time frame this? on that? <laughs> Metaphysically, no, just give us a little bit about your background and why you want to be attorney general. So my background is I have a deep legal background in the state of Louisiana, working in government, um, been in practice for over 30 years, clerked in federal court, clerked in state court, taught at the law school for over a decade. Um, I've got four kids and a husband. I've been married for, he's a lawyer too, been married for over 30 years. Um, I went to work, uh, I don't know, I guess around 2008 for um, the governor in Louisiana. And I was in the governor's office in various capacities for about six years. Um, and, and BP oil spill occurred during that time. And, and so we just had a lot. Of, we've always had a lot of involvement. I've always had a lot of involvement, I think, with the attorney general's office. Um, and it, it has always sort of stuck with me that it's a really important role not just inside the state, not just dealing with local and state governments inside our boundaries, but but with the federal government. And um, and my history is just that I've always been really interested in separation of powers. I know that sounds kind of nerdy, but it, and it is nerdy, but it, to me it's really important part of why our democracy or why our republic works. And it's a really important function in government, both at the state and federal level. So it was interesting. I had Jane Stricker. I don't know if you've met her, heard of her, but she was at BP. She was actually in charge of the settlement because there were two mm -hmm. settlements, BP with the federal government. I think one was with the EPA and the other one was some sort of employee safety um, commission. So she came in and talked about having to comply with those settlements and the number of pages she had to generate. The funniest part, somebody had to fly over to New Orleans and pee in a cup and take a drug test because they were on probation. <laughs> in New Orleans, of all places, where <laughs> you know, most people would fail that test, I think, in New Orleans. Yeah. Well, right now, anyway. Hopefully, BP was able to find somebody that was able to pass, yeah. and, they, and they must have. But it was, it was interesting hearing her kind of walk through that because I kind of knew this. But I truly didn't have an appreciation for just how overbearing the federal government can be. I oh, mean, the nuances crazy. of that compliance were were amazing. And I, you know, it was a it was a civil settlement to some of it. But federal government bad? Are Fed we in that camp? Or you know, 
I think generally speaking, my my experience right now, federal government bad. I mean, it's just I think we could get rid of large, large sectors of the federal government and all of us would probably be better off for it. Um, you know, especially right now. And, I, you know, we've, I've got a number of lawsuits that I'm leading, uh, multi-state lawsuits where we are challenging actions of the federal government um, related to energy policy. So, you know, that's that's something that I get pretty fired up about because I've never seen, I mean, what for whatever the history was that we can point to in recent, um, of recent presidential administrations, no one has ever um, that I can think of attacked an entire industry and, and put it in an executive order from the time that the president took office and said, I'm going to take down a whole industry and I'm going to do it in a whole of government approach. And that's what they've been doing and you can see it happening and they have not made a secret out of it. In fact, they've made it a, a cause celeb. Just let's attack the fossil fuel industry, um, fossil fuel industry, bad um, federal government, good. And we're going to take them down. And it's exactly the opposite, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, we see and I, you know, I know most people don't do this. Most people don't read the federal register, but I've got a team of people that do. And they can, we can see, you know, when the treasury is getting involved in pulling the financial structures out from under an industry, when the EPA is involved at multiple levels and trying to transform the country in a way that Congress never has ordered or envisioned or authorized. And, and then you see it also being pushed through the White House and through, you know, the myriad of other little tiny agencies in the federal government. I mean, it is death by a thousand cuts. So this was when I, I went to Rice undergrad and took constitutional law from my favorite professor. God rest his soul. He passed away a couple of years ago. But anyway, um, Mike Bossy and I uh, scored the highest grade on the final exam. We both made 98s. I went to every class. I bought every book. I did all the reading. I turned in all the uh, homework assignments, all that. Mike Bossy showed up on the first day, got the syllabus, showed up for the final exam. So handing out the, the test, Doc pulls us aside. And, and Doc was, he claimed to be deaf, although I think he kind of faked. So he <laughs> talked funny. He's like, Trot and Mark, y'all boys did really well on this exam. And I'm just so proud of you. Chuck, I get it. You showed up. Mike. How in God's name did you make a 98? Because you never bought the books. I checked with the bookstore. You didn't do any of the readings, all this. Mike Bossy looked Doc in the eyes and said, Doc's constitutional law. It's pretty easy. The feds always win. <laughs> so, I mean, which Doc was like, crap, I gave five questions and the fed won the every fed case. won every time, yeah. How do you fight that as an attorney general for a state? So I like to, I mean, I always say this and I, I, tr I truly believe it. I mean, I think you, first of all, you can't win if you don't fight. Um, so you have to be in the fight. Um, and I think we have to take seriously our role in, 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 as leaders, um, the chief legal officers of a state, which is what the attorney general is and what the office stands for, um, just, just protecting the state's sovereignty. Now, we may not win all of those fights, but you aren't going to win them if you don't fight them. And you do win a lot. And, and, you know, I was telling you, we won one yesterday. It wasn't technically against the federal government. In fact, we used federal 
government policies in place and rules that were in place to win a lawsuit against California. So talk about this lawsuit because so, it's great. Yeah. So so California, which which California likes to do, passed a law to try and kind of exercise its market power in a way that would affect um, an entire market across the country. And in this particular case, they banned possession and sale of alligator skin. Um, so I won't get too in the weeds about why alligator skin is part of a, but it's part of a very intricate regulatory network that also connects up to crocodiles and other reptilian creatures um, and some international treaties that govern the taking and the, the sale of, um, of reptiles and alligators and crocodiles. And, um, and so we'd have a huge, we have one of the most successful, and I think it is the most successful conservation story and rebound story with the American alligator and Louisiana has the largest habitat. It, it crosses over some in the Houston area. Um, it crosses over some into Mississippi, uh, but it's predominantly a, a, um, habitat in Louisiana. And we've got about, you know, I think right now about two and a half million alligators in Louisiana. It's the most successful rebound story for um, something that was originally listed as on the endangered species list and now has come back through a partnership with industry. And so through that partnership, we take, um, we cull eggs from the swamp. Um, that's a whole story about how people actually go out and take the eggs from under a very defensive alligator mother. But they get the eggs, they, they harvest the eggs, and then they will take them to a farm and they will grow the alligators to they're about four years old. And then they have to put at least, I think, 50% of them back into the swamp. So they, can, they, they have recovered an entire species by doing this. The other 50% they use for, um, for, they market them. I mean, I've got, now my alligator boots that I'm wearing right now are from an alligator I shot out in the swamp. But um, so I just participate in this this conservation program by we get alligator tags and the tags are part of managing managing the species. Well, California and PETA, largely PETA, passed a law and we were able to get a law passed some time ago, years ago, that banned the taking and sale of alligator skin, possession of alligator skin. California was in litigation some time ago and they lost and because this is all preempted by federal law. And so that just sort of sat around for a little while. Um, the, they delayed the effective date of their law over and over and over again until about four years ago when they, they, that, that vote failed in the California legislature. So the law magically became effective. Um, so then you were a felon. Like if I had walked through Los Angeles airport wearing my alligator boots, I would be committing a California felony because I would be in possession of alligator um, that was banned in the state of California. And um, so I was actually looking forward to going to court wearing my alligator boots, but um, didn't get to do that. I think we, I had some conflict, but uh, we got the injunction yesterday. So we beat California. Nice. Alligators remain, you know, a vibrant species and so does the market and California loses, Louisiana wins and the country wins. Outstanding. <laughs> that's so cool. So that's the story of my alligator boots. There you go. I like it. So we were talking on the, on the walk kind of through the music hall, getting back to the uh, podcast studios about carbon. Mm. What's the federal government doing to us there? So, you know, one of the lawsuits that I'm leading is a lawsuit challenging uh, the social cost of carbon metrics. And the social cost of carbon is this 
economic concept, um, I think, made up by environmental economists uh, who have attempted to place a, a monet to monetize the damage to the planet caused by a metric ton of carbon. And then they have come up with a way, a calculator basically to use that metric as a base to determine what the monetization of damage would be for methane or for nitrous oxide. And so these are what we I globally call the social cost of carbon metrics. Um, but they, they are a mechanism right now that the federal government is doing through an executive order of the president um, is applying it basically across the entirety of the federal government. So it used to be a concept that we talked about um, more conceptually, like they came up with a number and they would use it to sort of roll out. This is what the, the, the damage number looks like. Um, if we looked at sort of, a um, a drop of oil from the from something or, or driving an SUV down the, the, the interstate and, or a number of however, how many metric car tons of carbon are exude, you know, or, or put into the atmosphere from that. And then they multiply it and come up with the damage, but it's a 300 year trajectory and it's got a lot of, um, subjective assumptions built into it. So I think it's basically voodoo economics. I mean, it's basically a bunch of made up numbers. Now it's fine for economists to go do this as a, as a thought exercise, as an intellectual exercise. But when the federal government, when the president puts it in an executive order and says, you will apply these metrics across the federal government, all your decision-making in procurement in um, how we, you know, build buildings, occupy buildings, purchase per all, you know, all decision-making permitting it's huge, impactful in permitting hiring is it hitting hiring stuff yet or so part of what we've tried to tease out is an answer to the question of when you say when the president says do this in all the decision making across the federal government what does that mean how many decisions does that touch um we know that it, it touches the national environmental policy act nepa um, NEPA studies are performed when something has an environmental impact. You have to make a decision about whether it does. And if it doesn't, then you can kind of don't have to do a real deep study. Um, if it does, then you may have to do a much deeper study. We're in litigation constantly over with environmental groups over, um, over challenges to the NEPA study, um, the environmental impact assessment. And, and so when you build those numbers into that, it has another consequence of driving what your mitigation costs are going to be. So if you can build it into NEPA and say, well, we did this environmental impact study and we applied the social cost of carbon metrics and we determined that it's going to cost um, the planet, uh, you, you are damaging the planet to the tune of, you know, a billion dollars. And so your mitigation costs to replace that compressor station or to replace that pipeline um, because you're going to be putting gas through that pipeline and people are going to use that gas and they're going to have, um, that's going to have emissions associated with it. And that's causing us damage to the planet of a billion dollars. So now you have to mitigate for the billion dollars of damage that you just caused by changing out that pipeline. What's the consequence of that? People don't change out their pipelines. What's the consequence of that? You get breaks in the pipeline. Like it, it, it doesn't help. It kills me. Because what the FERC did here recently right. is they went from 
yeah. a stand, uh, they, they, they basically, and I'm grossly oversimplifying, they said you can take into account right. global warming type issues on that. And I actually, I'm, so I'm the, the resident libertarian at Digital Wildcatters. I could even live with something like that if it was a relative standard, meaning the new pipeline will be better than the old one. Let's take that into account. But it's an absolute standard, and the new pipeline might have one MCF of an emission. Right. We can choose to vote against that. Well, and, that, and FERC, that, I'm glad you brought up FERC because FERC is, um, I think, has become the new battleground. So, you know, we, we, we litigated this whole issue about the Clean Power Plan for over a decade, and we won. We won on the question of whether EPA could take a very tiny little um, statute that had never been used for any significant, you know, per, in any real major way and use that as a way to transform the energy sector of this, this, the country. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's what we call the major questions doctrine. If it's a question that big, then Congress would have said, this is what this is for. And you can use it this way. And Congress didn't say that. So you can't. I think a lot of the, the effort now to do transformational change in the energy sector has been moved to FERC um, because FERC regulates the electricity rates and things like that. And they have some power to supersede the decision making at the state level. So we are fighting that. Our public service commission's fighting back. I know Texas is, is too. Um, a lot of other states are engaged, but FERC is its own kind of litigation island. Like there are all these little tricks and having to, that you have to kind of boxes you have to check and things you have to do to be able to successfully litigate a case at FERC. Um, so for the uninitiated, it can be a real graveyard for claims because you've got to know how to do it. And we did get involved in that GHG policy um, activity at FERC and they did pull it back, but it's a five member commission and three of them are you know, totally on board with building a, a massive kind of concept of taking into account greenhouse gas emissions into the FERC decision-making process for whatever it is you need permission from, from FERC. And, um, and the biggest thing is pipelines that need permission to replace compressors and, and do things like that. And so they can jack up the costs really, really high by taking these numbers into account. And when we litigated that issue and, and they pulled it back, the metrics were lower. They've tripled the metrics now by, you know, updating, which I put in air quotes because, you know, again, there's nobody's ever had notice or comment of how they've come up with these numbers. That's one of the things we complain about. Like if you're going to do this through the government, you need to put it out so that people who are affected by it can comment on it and evaluate what the impact is. And you have to explain how you actually came up with these numbers. They won't do that because the assumptions that they make are so arbitrary. And because the projections relate to global climate damage for th over 300 year period. Well, I don't know. And they don't take into account the things we're doing now to limit our carbon footprint. Right. So it's all a one way ratchet. It's all damage. It's all bad. It's all a gazillion dollars to fix. And, and what that means is that the government gets whatever it wants. Back to your point of the government always wins. The federal government always wins. It is a metric that will permit the federal government to always win. And the example I gave you was cows. So cows emit 30% of the methane 
I mean, 30% of the methane emissions in our country are attributable to cow, cows. Did you know it's burps, 90% of it's burps, 10% of it's farting. I was very disappointed to learn that. As a big farter, I I, I, always thought it was too. Cows farting is much funnier than cows burping, but it's actually the the burping. So if you think about if we, I mean, and we, we brought this up when they, when the executive order came out and there was this kind of kerfuffle on Twitter about how the federal government wants to, you know, take away your hamburgers. And that was actually a very sort of simple way of explaining that, yes, they do, in fact, want to get rid of of cattle and beef. And right now there's an there's an effort to force cattle farmers to get a permit to own cattle. So, you know, anytime you overlay a permitting process, a federal permitting process on the on business, any business and here cattle farming, um, now they will control it. And now they can implement and, you know, they can push these carbon, these, these costs. Well, I don't know any cattle farmer really who could afford to pay if they applied the metric, the metrics on the social cost of methane to a cattle farmer for their cattle. I mean, I just don't. And, and, and you're so if they wanted to kill us, force us to kill all our cattle, I think that they would justify that by saying, well, we're going to cut our carbon, our methane emissions 30% if we kill all the cattle and beef is bad for you anyway. Yeah. So we're, we're the government and we're here to help. Yeah. It just, <laughs> and, and, which Ronald Reagan remembers said yeah. were the scariest words he ever heard. <laughs> so my three kids have grown up living the greatest life on the planet. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, Absolutely. I want to come back as one of my kids, yeah. my eldest DJ in New York. I watch her Instagram page. I'm like, dad wants to go do that. That looks yeah, great. So fun. <laughs> you know, prestigious private schools, just anything you can imagine, you know, vacations in Europe, all that. And it's all been financed by hydrocarbon money, right? Right. Because I'm a longtime oil and gas guy before they kicked me out of the club. Mm. I got fired three years ago. Yeah, I, I want to hear that pri- story. I want to hear more about that story. So I ran a private equity oil and gas fund. And April of 2020, oil hits minus $37 a barrel. And so anyway, CEO calls me up and says, yeah, we need to talk. Chuck, we're going to have to let you go because of performance. And I was like, <laughs> I caused minus $37 oil? Who knew? But uh, anyway, it made the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they said I was leaving the firm. And what I did is I actually wrote them a nasty letter and said, I demand a retraction because they fired me. I did not leave. That's right. They fired I didn't me. do this. On pre- but, you know, can we do that with the president? I mean, I think we can. <laughs> I mean, we actually have an opportunity coming up to do that um, for performance. So, you know, I think in that case, we do need to fire him for performance. I mean, this attack on this industry, you know, you it's not all attributable to that. I mean, we've seen there are a lot of industry factors in play um, and there have been for years. I grew up in Lafayette, um, went to high school in the late you know 70s and Lafayette was really blowing and going in 19. 19- you know, 79. Can I cut you off and say <laughs> one Lafayette story? Yeah. So anyway, I'm in Lafayette because Rice is playing USL. Uh-huh. And Brian Mitchell was the quarterback. Uh, and he rushed for 497 yards and 27 touchdowns and destroyed <laughs> Rice. But we had so much fun out on the strip that night. And so we're wandering up and down the strip. Did you go to the and, keg? Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure we you went did. to the keg. <laughs> 
What was so funny Shanahan's. about it is literally every vice mentioned in the Bible is happening on the strip. And the police arrested me for having a glass in the street because that was the no-no. I was like, what about that over there? Yeah, what but about anyway. the 15-year-olds they were serving around the corner? Like, yeah, yes, laugh, anyway, yeah it wasn't real. Uh, it was, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the open container thing, the yeah, glass was, container. They wanted to protect big, you from cutting your hand. That was a big deal. But anyway, <laughs> it was great. The, uh, uh, so come back to the kids real quick. So they, you know, if you ask my kids, you want to get rid of hydrocarbons? Oh, yeah, Dad, it's polluting. It's right. yeah. They would do that. Yeah. And I always say, you know what? You can do that if you want tomorrow. You can put them out of business. Just stop using the product. Right. And guess what? They'll go bankrupt. And the thing that, the, but the serious note that the why I brought it up is energy is so important. Energy is life. Higher energy costs mean people die. Higher beef costs right. means people die. And that doesn't mean we don't necessarily do that, but let's do that in Congress. Let's have a debate. Let's be transparent about it. Let's talk about it. Let's compromise but to do it through the regulatory agencies, through executive order, that's just horrific. It, it is. and Because it's, it's too important. It's, it's really important. And it needs to be, I think, you know, I mean, of course, we might be complaining about something that's just, you know, impossible to change. But I, I do think that it needs to be a, it needs to be a more fair conversation. I mean, I, I, there, there was I think API did a commercial once that was I thought it was a really effective commercial, but it was somebody's like walking through Walmart and all of the things that are paid that are basically made or produced that that have some kind of, you know, that touch the hydrocarbon industry. I mean, plastic bottles or whatever is everything clothes. You walk through the the store. And those things start to disappear. And so at the end of the commercial, there's nothing there because everything depended on transportation or some kind of production process or, or you know, Vaseline as petroleum product. I mean, you just, everything had some connection back to energy industries. And um, I, I think that that was an effective way of trying to bring home in a very visceral picture picture to younger people who don't understand what it is that, you know, if you want to have the courage of your convictions and you better be willing to give it all up. And I, I think that they aren't. Um, but also to your point, they shouldn't because I mean, people do die. Like when we talk about energy resiliency and, and bringing people out of poverty. So we are the richest nation in the world i think history and, of the world and yeah and so you know when we think about poverty it's very different than say poverty you see in india or in africa or somewhere and if you think about some of those countries that are trying to lift themselves out of poverty what do they need the most they need reliable energy they need electricity they need reliable power sources and you know i think we've all been a positive and embracing and all of the all of the above approach to lowering the carbon footprint, having a cleaner planet, like all that's super great goals. But when we think about lifting people out of poverty, what they need is reliability. They need reliable energy. And and can we do that in a responsible way? I think we can. Um, well, but mean, we shouldn't be like touting wind and solar as exclusive answers to this problem. Because they never will be. 
And it, and it's the height of arrogance for us to go tell Africa, no, you can't do that. It truly is. Don't worry, we got ours, but right. but you can't. Uh, We're here to tell you. I mean, because the, the the simple uh, fact of the matter is, when you stop burning wood and dung as your fuel source, right. and you go to hydrocarbons, your standard your life expectancy doubles, and your standard of living is exponentially yeah. better, and. Uh, the only true way, I think, to lower the carbon footprint is to get everybody to a standard of living where we can afford to. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just think I think that's the uh, that's the imperative. And so, as we place more costs upon it, et cetera, people are going to suffer. And I'm not sure that's the the right answer. Um, that said, I've always been a believer in technology. I mean, the humans have always had every hundred years has always been better than the previous hundred years or every 200 years has been better than the previous 200 years. And so I truly think technology is going to solve this problem. I mean, God put these things down here called plants that seem to <laughs> suck carbon out plants. pretty well. I so know. I'm, I was I'm thinking sure, about that. You know, I'm, you, I'm sure we're going to figure that out. I think Arizona doesn't, doesn't, uh, need to take I mean they have maybe less farmland that has to be destroyed to build a solar farm but when you when you build a solar farm you are sometimes taking a lot of plants offline to put online a um a solar panel and you know those plants actually take carbon out of the air so okay so i've got one tinfoil hat to throw at <laughs> th- thing to throw at you so basically historically the united states the government has had goals and they've said, okay, here are our goals, and they incentivize it through regulation, taxes, whatever the case may be. But to our credit, we we would let the market decide stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we want X, Y, and Z, you guys go solve it. I think for the first time with the IRA, they have gone all in and written the prescriptions. This is what we're going to do. And one of those things is electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. They have said, we're doing electric vehicles. They haven't said, hey, could y'all go make gasoline out of natural gas and maybe it emits less? Right. You know, we just want less in the way of emissions. They've said, no, nah, we're going all in on electric vehicles. So I think to that point, the question we should ask is, okay, well, how much better are electric vehicles? Right. And we know the carbon footprint of an internal combustion engine. We've been making them for a hundred some odd years. We can tell you to the nth degree what they do. I'm not sure we've really crunched all the math to figure out exactly how good electric vehicles are. Volvo did a study. It's on their website that you can go read. And the punchline to the study is, Depending on the fuel source for the electricity, it's anywhere from kind of 70,000 miles to 90,000 miles that an electric vehicle crosses over and is better than an internal combustion Mm -hmm. engine. So, okay, most cars run more than 70,000 miles. So, okay, it is better. But we're talking about spending trillions. Well, and what are they taking into account? So, yeah, like this whole. It's a, it, I think that EVs are, um, they're, they're sort of superficially attractive. Like they're cool looking cars. Oh, I drove a you know, Tesla Kia's for got a new one years. coming out. Yeah. It looks really cool. I mean, I, you know, they've got, they, they, yeah, they like, they look cool. Everybody likes to drive a Tesla and be the cool guy with the EV. Um, I, I, we don't have the infrastructure to support it. 
Right. And and if you think about, you know, what I think a lot of people, I don't know where people think we get electricity from. <laughs> uh, some of these electrical plants are, they're trying to take coal-powered plants offline. Um, you can look online and see what everybody's state, every state's kind of power um, Mix. resume looks like. Yeah, yeah, like how much of, and their electricity plants and how they're electrical, what, whether are they powered by natural gas or are they powered by um, coal and, you know, we have been trying to retire coal, but every coal plant that closes in the United States, 11 more open up in China. Yeah. And they're not subject to the same regulatory restrictions that we are. So have we, what's our net gain there? You and mean then, to tell me there's not a ping and a non-ping <laughs> section of the pool, right? I right. Mean, that's yeah, right. It's one atmosphere. Yeah. So, um, you know, do they take that into account when they evaluate their social cost of carbon metric? Do they take into account... The strip mining, you know, that's occurring in, in other countries to the, get the, the minerals that you need to build these vehicles. That runs off diesel, by the way, right? right. That's right. It's not like you can just plug into the middle of the right. Congo in the desert. Right. Or in so the we're jungle. powering yeah. it by, with, with diesel. Um, and then we are strip mining with children. You know what I mean? Yeah. So really, I mean, I don't, I think that the cost of um, driving an electric vehicle and feeling good about yourself in an EV is um, is not accurately reflecting what the actual cost is of that luxury. Um, so, and here's my tinfoil hat take on that. Okay. And I'm trying to I'm trying to prep you for yeah. this because you're going to be in a position to do something about it. <laughs> I think why I they're doing it is if we all have electric vehicles. What happens? You're no longer buying gasoline, so there's no longer the gasoline tax, right? That's how most states finance roads, right? So what's going to happen? It's going to become normalized to where you're going to pay you know, cents per mile you drive. And oh, by the way, we have to put this sensor in your car so we, the federal government, can track where you go. Okay, I so, honestly believe okay, this, now and you, I know you this call is that tin a tinfoil hat. hat. No, no, no. Let me tell you. So, because this is going to make you realize that it's not as tinfoil hat as you think, um, or else we're both tinfoil hats, which you know probably somebody might say that, but um, at least about me, I I think um, we just won a case. Um, we were we were not the primary plaintiffs. We were um, amicus. We were just had helped propel the case to victory, um, but it involved charter boat fishing. Um, charter boat fishermen in Louisiana are sort of a big kind of next level up from wreck fishing, recreational fishing. Um, and I think charters are probably pretty big in Galveston too, similar to Louisiana. Um, there, there is a sector of charter fishing that is big, kind of big boats with 60 or 70 people on them. But the majority of charters, at least in, in our state, are, um, and that we know of, I mean, like really the big commercial charters is a smaller part of this, of this, this, this part of the, um, fishing sector. But these guys were ordered by the federal government to put GPS trackers on their boats and those GPS trackers that would, they would track them every time they left the dock and they had to report to the federal government when they were leaving the dock. And all of this was justified by saying, well, we need to count the fish and they do count fit. They count the takings of fish. Um, and we have various mechanisms for doing that. And they, they've already had those in place for a while. And there's no evidence that those don't work. But they came up with this idea that they were going to create. And commercial fishermen already have to do this, by the way. But they were now pushing it down on charters. 
And the next step would be to put it on wreck because wreck fishing, recreational fishermen are also taking fish. Well, we got to know how many you're taking. And if we're going to have accurate numbers and we got to know when you leave the dock and we need to be able to check, like, because we're going to GPS track you to make sure that you are where you said you were going. And, you know, it's, it was astonishing to me. The, the federal judge that reviewed the rule um, basically completely spun past the Fourth Amendment question of whether it was an illegal search. Um, it was, in fact, it was, there was a huge Fourth Amendment problem. Um, the judge was like, no big deal. Like, they've been doing this in commercial forever. And we said, well, that's the problem. This isn't commercial. This is charter. And these charter guys take these boats out. They go to church sometimes in their boat. They go, um, they go on, you know, recreational outings with their family in their boat because their boat is not just for, it's not a commercial fishing endeavor. Charter boat guys take people out who go fishing. They aren't like commercial fishermen who go out and collect the fish and then sell them. They're just taking you out on a boat to go fishing and you're the fisherman and they were GPS tracking them. So I don't think you're that, I really don't think that it's as much of a tin hat thing as you, you, you know, you might suggest. I think that we are, we have absolutely moved further toward being tracked. You can, I mean, we are pretty easily tracked by our phones, by the way. And we had a big fight about that in the Supreme court about whether your pings off cell towers are amounts to whether the government could just get that data um, without getting a search warrant. Um, we, we have a Supreme Court right now, the majority of which I think is very protective of people's civil liberties and um, both on the criminal side and on the um, just predominantly on the criminal side. But so that's a good thing. But that's a good thing. Yeah, no, the you're right, because. I think the key to my tinfoil hatness is I know they can track our phones. It's the normalization of it, it that is. it's just okay for the government to do it. I that's what's so scary. Yeah, about. at least now you're right. We do have to get a judge to say, okay, we can you know pull where Chuck was and right. Apple can weigh in on this. But I think it's going to become normalized when everybody drives an electric vehicle. It's going to be. Hey, well, yeah, just, they got to yeah, check. They got to check, yeah. and that's all. No, fine. they don't. I mean, I, you know, I, I went to something. Um, I was a United States Supreme Court fellow, which was like a mid-career fellowship thing that I did in DC um, from 2007 to 2008. And um, you know, at at that time, we were um, there was we part of the 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 job that I was in basically was working with the think tank for federal judges. They do all the training for federal judges. And there's a little program they did at Harvard where they go through, um, it's kind of like emerging or, you know, emerging areas that are going to be hot topics in law. And they're, they're talking, they've got a lot of professors at the law school who are coming and talking about some of the work that they're doing. There's a law and technology Institute at Harvard. And this was, you know, 15, 12 years ago, 13, 14 years ago. And at the time, they had this big discussion about how this generation um, doesn't, of kids that we were raising, which is, you know, remember probably they were talking about kids who would be born then would be 20. So, you know, now you've got 20, 30-year-olds. I've got four sons. They range from age 19 to almost 30. And they do, this is what they were predicting, is that this generation is going to have a very different view of privacy because they grew up with cell phones. We did not. I didn't. I grew up with a landline. Me, thank God, 
didn't have, <laughs> didn't know, have attached it. to the Ooh. wall. And it, you know, I mean, it's just, we didn't have the internet. I remember, you know, getting a computer when I was in law school and thinking, this is kind of cool. I can, you know, I don't have to write it out, write things, use it. I mean, I was a journalist. I typed out papers in college on a typewriter. So I took typing, you know, not so I could work on a computer in when I was in high school, but so that we could type on a typewriter. And, um, you know, I had a typewriter, I remember even in the 90s. And, uh, you know, so we grew up very different with a very different view toward our privacy and what we will um, give it up for. And you've got a generation right now that will give up their privacy for a free app. Yeah, that's what they do. Every time they put an app on their phone, they're giving up their privacy and they don't. And, you know, but it's free Facebook and Twitter and all these things that we just sort of download and put on our phone and um, and everything. When it asks you about that GPS tracker, like, do you want it to track you just while you're using the app? Do you want it to track all the time? I mean, some of them ask you 10 times a day and you just got to keep telling it no or you got to reset your settings all the time. Um, but these kids, will, you know, they don't I don't I think that that would prediction you know, was very, very accurate that this is a generation that doesn't value their privacy the same way that I think a prior, the prior generations did because they've been raised by giving it up. Okay, Liz, this has been great. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. The viewing audience are the voters of Louisiana. Why are you the person to be the attorney, the next attorney general? You know, I'm the person because I have the the legal experience, the life experience, and a passionate commitment to the people of our state and to um, to preserving our ability to govern ourselves in the way that we think is appropriate, which I think actually is defending, you know, defending the the republic, um, defending your rights, defending my rights. Like I'm passionate about that. I have the experience having done it. Um, and uh, I'm committed to the people of our state. That's why. That's cool. I know the uh, alligator shoe wearers in <laughs> California are singing your praises right now. The um, so tell me how this this works in Louisiana because you're running as a Republican mm -hmm. over here in Texas. We do primaries and then we get a Republican and then a general. How how does Louisiana elections work? So we have open primaries, so there's not a there are no party primaries. Um, anybody can jump in, and you can affiliate however you want. There's not really a a test. You just if you claim you're a Republican, then you can register yourself as a Republican, and you can run as a Republican. Now, you know I think my record shows that I'm 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 a conservative Republican. I mean, those are the fights that I bring. But at the end of the day, what I'm protecting is our state's ability and our people's ability to engage in self-governance and to protect the separation of powers. And I think that's something that, that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, that you, you, you should, I think that's something that you should value unless you're one of the, you know, anarchists who thinks that the constitution ought to be thrown out in the garbage, which I do not believe. So, um, you know, that's, I mean, I'm, I think that, uh, that the, the fights that I've fight and the ones that I'll continue to fight protect our state and protect our people's individual liberties. So, you know. So the so the open primary people run and what the top two top two. So if you get over fifty percent of the vote, then there's no runoff. Okay. So, you know, if I manage to do that, then I won't have a runoff. I the the um 
qualifying and it's real tight. So some states like like Mississippi, for example, has um, statewide elections this year too, but they had uh, primary qualifying in January. I think in February it's closed now, and uh, and they will have an election I think in November. So there's a long runway after the the, the party primaries are over for the candidates to get out and run against each other. In, in Louisiana, qualifying is at the end of August. Um, early voting will start at probably the last week of September. And then the election is October 14th for the, the primary. And then the runoff is in the middle or kind of latter part of November. Okay. Right before Thanksgiving. Good. So it's bang, bang, it's bang, bang, bang. I mean, it's, it's really fast. Um, on the fundraising side, I'm raising money now. I've been raising money for over a year. Um, and then, you know, I'll spend a lot of it through the primary and, and I can't, I mean, for our, our fundraising caps are per cycle. So the first cycle is the primary and then it's a new cycle for the general, but the general is like six weeks of time. So, you know, by creating such a tight, tight framework, it makes it really hard. I think when you come out of the primary, um, you're, you're now you're all of a sudden back at ground zero and you're your money and you've got six weeks to another election and early voting is usually two weeks out. It's like three weeks out because there's a week of kind of dead time before the election day. So you really only have three weeks to raise money for you need to be having commercials for two weeks before you, need you to have go commercials out again. Before you go peruse all the freezers. Over <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't check everybody's freezers. <laughs> That's so bad. It's so funny. Uh, how do people find out about you? Website? Are you Website, on social media? How, what's all? Both. What are I'm all on those social things? media? Um, Liz Merle for AG uh, is uh, for Louis, for LAAG. I think is my my um, social media page, but um, it's Liz Baker Merle for Attorney General on on Facebook. But my webpage is www.liz uh, the number four la dot com. And so really you can find everything there. And, and if you search for me on Twitter and Facebook, you'll find me there too. And cool. Instagram. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Liz. It's been great so, meeting you. Thanks. It's been great being with you, Chuck. Love to come back anytime. Standing the in digital bite. wildcatters and get Chuck. What is it? Uh, Chuck needs a job. Chuck Yates needs yeah, a job. Chuck Yates needs a job. So we got to keep Chuck Yates busy. So, and, uh, uh, yeah, no, the, uh, you know, I figured out that I'm fundamentally the laziest person on the planet. <laughs> and so being unemployed is kind of a jam. I'm really you just good found at this. your dream job. It's I'm the one that really doesn't feel like it's worse. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, podcasts are great. I love it. I was just telling um, Allie that I, I love being I love podcasts because you can actually sit and talk about something and um, and have a conversation and and kind of dig in on it a little bit. And there's not really any other medium that lets you do that. Well, and did we ever think we'd get to the point in life where the media would so abdicate their responsibility right. to inform that literally we go to Joe Rogan and Howard Stern to get our information? Yeah, look, I mean, I think and and I'm guilty of this myself that you get I get most of my news now. I know what's happening the fastest by going to Twitter. Because all of the news organizations have Twitter pages and all of the breaking news shows up there in a, in a headline. And so, it, it, you know, it, it's unfortunate that we've, we've trained 
ourselves and we're training, again, a younger generation to um, grab really low-hanging fruit and not go very much deeper. And I think that's a problem. Like we need, you know, hopefully there will be a reaction to that. I mean, sometimes you see that, I think, with um, generationally that, that you know, that you think that you're kind of um, – making it too easy on them. And then you find out that they're better and smarter than we think they are. And that, that they're actually going to kind of value, go back to sort of some core values that always made sense. Um, so I hope that for our kids, I mean, I think that, that the core values that we usually sort of go back to tend to repeat themselves as being, um, being, you know, there is a, there is a way to do the right thing. There are, things that are good in the world and smart in the world and that, that work for us. And if we can keep returning to those kind of values, then maybe we do get back to where we need to be. And kind of year after year, they actually seem to work. They do. You know? Yeah. So, you know, foundational values still matter. And, um, you know, I think that we can change the names of things. And, uh, and at the end of the day, I think there is sort of a drive for common sense that a lot of people have. And, I cling to that because I'm one of those people. Like, I think common sense is important. Yates children. Liz is saying, go <laughs> clean your room. Do your homework. Make your bed. Call your dad. Be nice to your mom. Call your mom. Be nice to your mom. Exactly. Um, and make your bed. Like, and there's a book. Of, I think a Navy SEAL wrote that book. It said, make your bed. Like, it's like the most important thing you should do every day when you get up is make your bed. And I do that. Um, and it is cause it sort of sets the stage for your day. Like it's a, it's, you, you have accomplished something every single day when you get up and make your bed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Liz, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here, Chuck.